I just stepped outside for a moment, and I was so surprised how balmy and warm it was. It really caught me off guard. felt like I was in Hawaii. <laughs> Not used to feeling that when I'm in Canada. <laughs> it's a new experience. <laughs> Too bad we can't just sort of be out there for a little while while this you know, balminess is here. So today in the interviews that I was having, I, I really felt people opening. And interesting, some people are opening to a real joy and delight and uh, freedom in the practice. And other people are opening, you know, really to some of their their pain or their grief or sense of loss and some of the... Uh, uh, the, the conditions that really are um, our human condition, the conditions that represent our human condition. And so I wanted to talk about that a little bit tonight, just our human condition. And in talking about that, it seems to be what the Buddha woke up to when he was sitting under the Bodhi tree and awakened to the Four Noble Truths. And the first Noble Truth is the truth that there is suffering in this life, there is dukkha in this life. And when I was reflecting on that, I, I sensed that the, that that was the kind of the awakening of the Buddha's compassionate heart. Because he, he awoke to the first truth, that there is pain, there is suffering. And, and when I sense into that and feel that, I feel the compassion of our predicament, of our human predicament. That there is pain. And the primary, one of the primary things that the Buddha points to is this cycle of birth and death. That birth is dukkha. You know, coming into this world, being born, is painful. It's dukkha. That as we age, that's dukkha. You know, and we get sick, and that's, that's dukkha. And we die, and that's dukkha. That's painful. And that we are all part of that condition. <laughs> that is, that is the, the suffering or the dukkha that, as a human, we cannot be separated from. That is the condition of this human body, of this existence that we find ourselves in. So the first, this first truth of dukkha, you know, it's a very important one for us to reflect on because, you know, we tend to, and we see it when we come to retreat, is that we see how we personalize this condition. We personalize this sense of the aging, you know, the aging body or the, you know, the getting sick when we get sick or the body starts to break down and different kind of decay or, you know, when, when we think about death or when people die, um, which is happening all the time, um, we, we somehow don't want it to happen to us, and if it does start to happen to us, sometimes we feel like something's wrong, you know, or somehow we are missing 
something, missing something that, some kind of perfection that might be possible for us, somehow that, that we may be able to um, uh, have our, our, our idealized condition persist somehow. But I think we forget that we are of this nature. We are of this nature as all things, all things in this reality, in this conditioned reality, are affected by. All things come into birth and all things pass away. All things die. There's this wonderful um, uh, daily reflection, five subjects for daily reflection. And I think it's a helpful reflection for us. We could take it on as a practice. Some people take it on as a practice. But it's by, you know, repeating the contemplations First one, I am the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to become sick. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. Just we, we take that in. We take that in. I am of this nature. This is my nature. The fourth one, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. These are the the truths. This is also the truth of the first noble truth, this truth that there is this pain, this, this dukkha, this suffering, or this unsatisfactoriness in the nature. I'll read that fourth one again. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. Everything changes, is impermanent. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become separated from me. It's the truth. The fourth one, the fifth one is, I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma. Whatever actions I do, for good or ill, of those I will inherit. All of my actions, for good or for ill, that is what I inherit. That is what I go to my, my deathbed with. All of those actions. So that's the karma. So, so we reflect on that. And we see if we can change that karma for the better so we stop continuing to do things that are creating more difficult and painful karma for ourselves by engaging in actions that are hurtful or harmful to myself or to others. So very important reflections for us as we feel into the compassion. It's really for me, I feel this as a compassionate response to the human condition that this is the way it is. It's not so personal. And yet, that's what happens for us. We, we feel hurt. We feel sad. We feel grief. We feel a sense of loss. And all, that's, all that, too, is natural. It's real. It's, it's part of being human. But sometimes, too, we, we want to push that away, or we don't want to feel those kind of feelings. We don't want to feel the sadness or the grief or the loss. Somehow we want to you know, keep, keep a kind of persona that is, 
is not going to show those kind of vulnerable, soft, tender feelings. Sometimes, some people. And so we want to recognize if there's some way that we configure ourselves or hold ourselves and defend ourselves in a way so we keep that, uh, keep that secret, keep those tender, more softer, vulnerable feelings a secret, like it's somehow not okay. And I think as we come to terms with our humanity and, and our condition, we start to let go into those feelings as well. That's part of the opening. It's part of what we open to. And it's not so personal. It's not something about me. It's not something about who I take myself to be or my personality or my identity. I'm just being human. (laughs) Just human. And yet we're not really taught that, most of us. We're not really learned. That's not something that we learn. It almost is part of the spiritual journey. It's part of the spiritual awakening where, where we start to touch into those feelings that, that are an expression of compassion and expression of love and tenderness and, and wisdom. That, that becomes very, very um, genuine in a way for us to, to start to express ourselves more, more fully, more truthfully, more wholly. And I know for myself, too, that that was something I was hoping that by coming to the spiritual path, I would just be able to avoid, that somehow I would just be able to kind of just go on this straight path to Buddhahood, you know, so I wouldn't have to really feel anything, you know, sort of like I'd just be done with all that. (laughs) Now that I see it, kind of all that messy stuff, you know. (laughs) I don't want that mess, (laughs) messy stuff, you know. And so sometimes we we can use this, you know, use this meditation or have ideas about this path. It's somehow it's called one, John Wellwood, one of the, one of the wonderful um, articulate psychologists, calls it the spiritual bypassing, where we actually use the spiritual path to transcend or bypass the, the, the emotional life or the, the sort of the, me- the more the messy, <laughs> the messy kind of life. But yet the Buddha in his infinite wisdom, made that the first truth as his compassionate response. There is this dukkha. We will be separated. We will lose everything. Everything. And so, of course, then the whole Four Noble Truths develop as looking at how we hold on to these things that are changing. How we hold on to conditions that are just being born and passing away, being born and passing away, and yet we want to hold on dearly. Holding on to the things that are changing. This is called anicca dukkha. Anicca dukkha. This anicca, anicca is a Pali word for impermanence or the transitory, na- transitory nature of things. And the dukkha, the pain, the pain of holding on, the pain of holding on to things that are changing, slipping out of our, through our fingers, 
we grasp, we hold, we attach, we hold on for dear life, to try to make things stay the way we want them to, whatever that thing is, and then things keep crumbling, things keep falling apart to our amazement and then wonderment, like why are things, why, why, why do things decay? Why do things fall apart? Why do people die? Why do I get sick? Why do I age? Why, why does it have to be like this? And it's that kind of, oh God, have mercy. But when you really think about it more from a Buddhist philosophical perspective, that is the mercy. What if things lasted forever? <laughs> what, if there was, what if there was no decay and death and we were now locked into this prison? Always like this. <laughs> a fixed, static universe where nothing was changing, where nothing was moving, and you can't have some things changing and some things not changing. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Because there are universal laws. It's called the Dharma. The Dharma, the law or the order of things, the way things are. And so Anicca is one of the characteristics of existence, or it's one of the characteristics of reality. It is the way things are. There's no way around it. We can't wiggle ourselves around this one. <laughs> you know, even, you know, if the scientists keep finding ways to, you know, freeze our DNA or whatever it is so that we can, you know, be remade into a body, you know, a thousand years from now, or <laughs> all these, I think, pretty crazy ideas, you know. I don't know. Maybe some people want that. I don't want that. <laughs> but you know, all this is, is trying to live long, a long time, and extend our youth and extend our life. And I'm not sure we're made up like that. You know, I think it's just some fabricated ideas of, of people who think they can manipulate the, the, the law or the nature of things. So, so we start to come to terms with this and look more deeply at this pain that happens when we hold on to the conditions that are changing. And we can see as we sit here, and this is one of, we call this an insight, insight into a Nietzsche or insight into the impermanent nature of things. When you sit, you can see moment to moment to moment to moment, the change happened right there. The thoughts are changing, the sensations in the body are changing, the mind states are, the moods, the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, sights, and, and the forms that are appearing and disappearing before us. If you just reflect on today, how many impressions happened today? How many things came into form and disappeared? I remember when I was doing the, the long retreats, my mind would get very, very concentrated at the three-month <coughs> three retreats in, in Insight Meditation Society. And as you know that for most of us, the, the lunch meal is usually the highlight of the day. Right, you know, just w walking in and seeing that spread of food, you know, and being able to sit down and, you know, have the, the delight 
that happens when we have food. It's all very primal as well, because you know we've got to have food to sustain ourselves. So it's this primal thing. It's like, give me food, give me food, you know. And so, and so we, <laughs> when we when we see it, it's you know we very usually pretty delighted and sit down. We have this wonderful plate of food. And I remember when I was very concentrated and I was noticing moment to moment arising and passing and I would see the food disappearing on my plate <laughs> and I would just be watching the disappearing and and I was actually enjoyed like this pleasure and the enjoyment and I was seeing that that was coming to an end and then there was this empty plate and I would just watch that kind of like well, that's the end of that. You know, I might want that to continue and have that, that, that joy and that delight, but it, it ends. And the times that I have gone back for more food and filled up my plate and put more on there and ate more because I was grasping dukkha, you know, pain, be full and bloated and gaseous and, you know, it's terrible, you know. And then I have to go meditate, you know, sit and feel my body or go lie down, you know, when I wanted to rest. And, you know, the consequences of that grasping, the, the consequences of the attachment. And so just to seeing that, yes, yeah, things appear, they have their life for a while, and then they come to an end. That's the the nature of things. All conditioned things, all things are impermanent. All things of this world are impermanent. And in that, then, there is no thing, there is nothing that is capable of giving us any lasting satisfaction because the only way something can give us any lasting satisfaction is if it's permanent. How else can something give us a lasting fulfillment? Because that thing is not permanent, it is going to come to an end. And if I'm still holding on, if I'm still attached in some way, then I will feel the pain of that. I feel the pain of that holding. I feel the pain of that grasping. So we want to really take this in deeply. This is one of the, one of the primary contemplations in, our, in, this, in the Buddhist teachings is the reflection on impermanence. And that those five reflections help us with that kind of reflection. I want to read this story from um, Mark Nepo, who is a writer and a poet who had uh, suffered from cancer. And he just writes about his uh, insight into impermanence and how it actually released him from more suffering. He said, when I fell into the gauntlet of tests that awaited after the pronouncement that I had cancer, I was terrified of being in pain. I introduced myself to every physician and nurse as, Mark, put me out, Nepo. But with, <laughs> but, but with every procedure, 
there was some medical reason why I had to be awake. I came to realize that there was nowhere to run. Once I accepted this, which took some time, I understood that what was most terrifying about my pain was the prospect that it would never end, that life would somehow freeze in whatever moment of discomfort I came upon. The terror gained its power from not being able to imagine life beyond the pain. Right? That's, the, that's the hell realm. We call that living in the hell realm. When you, when you can't imagine the ending, you think this is going to last forever in a painful situation, a pain that is not going to come to an end. Of course, if it's pleasurable, then we don't ever want it to come to an end, and then we're grasping, and then we feel the pain of that when it does come to an end. The breakthrough moment for me came the day I had to have yet another bone marrow sampling. For some reason, these were the worst for me. But with the appearance that day of some deeper grace, I suddenly saw it differently. I recognized that this very uncomfortable procedure lasted at most 40 to 50 seconds. And I was arranging my entire life and being in anticipation and avoidance of those 50 seconds. That's huge. For the first time, I realized I had a choice. The pain of those seconds would be the same, but I could ground myself, including my fear, in the very real fact that my life would resume after those 50 seconds. There would be light in the air once again after the pain. For the first time, I felt in my soul that I was larger than my pain. This empowered me. That's an example of seeing clearly. We talk about seeing things clearly, seeing the way things really are, because our mind, the ego mind, can't see that. The mind, because it's not connected with reality, it's not connected with the truth. So there's a way it keeps solidifying reality, as if it is fixed, as if it is solid, and that then affects our perception. We start to see things as if they're solid, as if they don't have this dynamic energy in their aliveness, that they're changing and shifting and transitioning. But as we contemplate more deeply, then that, that, that taking in that wisdom, that knowing and that truth, then starts to shift our perception. And I know this has happened because some people, particularly on retreat, and we have this amazing meadows, beautiful prairie out here, and sometimes you can walk out there and you just see <laughs> how everything's so alive. You know, the trees and the grass and the birds and the, the earth and the dirt and, like, there's nothing that's, that's dead in the sense of static. Everything's filled with this life force, this vitality, this dharma. And so our perception, in those moments, our perception begins to see things as they really are. 
I just had a thought as I said that. <laughs> In my very early years, when I was doing a little bit of experimenting with some drugs, <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, that, that little drop of acid, <laughs> the whole world is like that. You know, that's why in the 60s that became so popular. Because people's perception, the doors of perception, you know, that's where the, that, that rock group got their name, the doors, right? The doors of perception open up. And everything is seen as it really is. But that isn't so helpful because there's no integration of that experience. There's no wisdom. There's no way to understand so that when that drug wears off, then, you know, so does the perception. And there's no, there's no wisdom that's gained from that. There certainly is the memory, but we're kind of locked back into our prison again. So we have those moments when the doors of our perception, the doors of our mind, the doors of consciousness that fly open, and it all becomes so apparent that things are not as solid as our mind makes it to be. This sense of self here and other over there, other being anything, external reality, and internal reality over here, you know, it all becomes very ordered and very set. And we believe that's the way it is until we start to question, until we, until we start to look deeply into the nature of things and start to look deeply within the nature of our own mind because it's all playing out right there. Momentary changes all the time. And so we want to see how it is that we're grasping. The Buddha says one of his definitions of wrong view, wrong view meaning not seen clearly, is that we take that which is impermanent to be permanent. This is wrong view. This is wrong view. Taking that which is impermanent to be permanent. There's a way I think that we really deeply know this. You know, I think there's a part of our being, the being that is awake, the part of our being that is awake knows this. And yet, because we haven't integrated that understanding and there's still so much identification with a sense of self, then the self gets scared. We get scared. And, and then we do try, our strategy is to try to hold on and try to control and try to manipulate so that maybe things won't fall apart. <laughs> if I try hard enough, if I put in enough effort, then maybe I can get things really ordered and, and to be just the way I want them and to stay a really long time and, and I can just be in this kind of environment that I created and everything will be fine. I'll, I'll be fine. So that house of cards, you know, building the house of cards, but we don't know we're building the house of cards. This is a predicament of our human condition when we're not awake to the truth of things. 
One time I was in teaching at Spirit Rock, and in the we, we have our meals in this yurt because we haven't built our dining room yet for the for the staff and for the teachers. And so I was in the yurt, and I was telling Jack Cornfield, the founder of Spirit Rock, about something that happened to my one of my relatives, and and he just said, he said, yeah, he said. Um, the winds of karma change as fast as a swish of a horse's tail. The winds of karma change as fast as the swish of a horse's tail. And it's so funny because that was a few years ago and I was just having some, some tea with Jack the other day and um, we were talking about something and he said, oh yeah, the swish of the horse's tail. You <laughs> know, Now he shortened it. <laughs> just the swish of the horse's tail. <laughs> you know, it's just like that. Just like that. You know? So I wanted to tell you about um, this, uh, and talking, talking about this, this swish of a horse's tail. Um, as many of you know, I go to New Zealand um, every year for about a month, and I teach there, and it's one of my favorite places in the whole world. <laughs> we have a New Zealander here, a Kiwi. <laughs> and um, so I have a lot of connections and friends there, and um, also friends that I met when I was living in England who, who are Kiwis. And um, maybe some of you know that in November of, of uh, last year, they, there was a very severe earthquake in Christchurch, and it was a, about a 7.1 on scale. And because Christchurch is really one of the models for building a, a city that is uh, uh, earthquake, uh, um, what do you call it? Huh? Resistant, you know, really one of the major technologies in uh, in understanding that te that earthquake technology. Nothing really happened. No buildings really shook, and the the um, nobody was hurt. I mean, it was really quite like, oh, how fortunate to have this very major earthquake and then have nothing happen. And a lot of you know, good, you know, they built their buildings really well and all that. Well, what happened was that they kept having these aftershocks and there were a lot of them like hundreds of aftershocks and by uh, a month or two months there were about 4,000 aftershocks and they were living with this kind of rumbling earth you know and we always imagine the earth is the most solid thing right this is we can really rely on, on that, that's static, <laughs> you know, that's our ground. But then the, the people in Christchurch were living with the rolling earth for months, for months, and it would stop for some time, they never knew when it would start up again. And as it was doing that, it was starting to liquefy the ground because it's very it's next to the ocean and so the so the so the so the earth wasn't very solid and so they were starting to have this kind of the earth itself was becoming more water like and then in february they had another big earthquake but it was only a 4.7 i think almost you know half of what the first one was and it destroyed 
the downtown, the whole downtown of the city just crumbled, as well as much of the suburbs of the, of the residential areas, and the ground just was just turning to liquid. I mean, and, and so right away, there were about 150 people killed, and they had to cordon off the downtown right away, so even the business people couldn't go back to their businesses. It was just cordoned off. There was this whole big area that was just cordoned off. And so my friends uh, who live there, this, uh, my friend Adele started writing um, some stories, some you know, updates about what was happening and how they were dealing with it. So in April, she, she, she wrote this, because all kinds of things were happening. She said, we had dramatic happenings last week when a hole opened up at the end of our driveway. The hole was about the size of an, of an adult foot. But when you looked down, there was no ground underneath as far as the eye could see. By the end of the day, it was two adult feet long and a bit wider. Still no ground underneath to be seen. When I spoke to the council, they said they expect to see lots of these holes opening up over the winter, as so much soil has been lost from down there. By day three, the hole was about four feet in length and two feet wide, and still we could not see where the end of the ground was in any direction. I just, it just, I can't even, I can't even imagine. It was very dramatic, she says, and we had to close off the pavement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Luckily, the council came that day and poured a truckload of gravel in so we could actually drive our car up. Now a week later, the hole had sunk again, but at least we know there's some gravel underneath, so there shouldn't be an immediate collapse, and we can still drive over it for the moment. <laughs> so they're driving their car over this, you know, where the gravel has been poured, not really knowing before then where the end of the ground was. Two weeks later, I get this email. Well, she says, the hole just kept getting bigger and deeper again, despite the tons of gravel that were shoveled down there. On Sunday, we stuck a broom under the ground to see how far under our driveway it went. Well, we didn't touch the ground, and the broom disappeared on the end of Liam's arm, her son, her young son. In the meantime, the councilmen came back, shook their heads, and said, nah, it needs a digger. So the digger came today and dug out a great big chunk of our driveway, filled it with gravel. We can now drive up the driveway again, for the time being anyhow. The guys said it's likely to subside again and said, just keep calling us and we'll come out and fill it again. <laughs> can you imagine living with this? And that was May and then... Apparently, there was about two months where things settled down and they, they started to feel like maybe they could rest again, you know, just feel a little bit of settling in their nervous systems. And then a few weeks ago, I got another email that there was another quake. And, and you know, then, of course, the nervous system just gets all startled again. So this is the human condition. <laughs> it's not personal. You know, it's not personal that they're feeling 
anxious and their nervous system is jangled and they're having difficulty sleeping at night and you know and and the children are 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 are, are feeling quite um traumatized by all of this and the communities coming together and they're supporting each other and helping each other they're trying to sustain their community through all of this my my understanding is that the downtown is still cordoned off it's almost a year later you know can you just all that kind of disruption you know and so so we don't know we don't know what's going to happen and we live with this insecurity we live with this uncertainty and and we know that as much as we want to pretend that you know I'm strong, I'm courageous, nothing bothers me, you know. It's it's in our being, in our in our true deepest places, we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable beings, we're fragile, we're vulnerable. We know this. But can we open to this with wisdom? Can we open to this with compassion? Rather than the usual tendency of the ego self is to grasp on more, is to attach on more, to try to control more, to manipulate more, because there's some kind of belief that it's going to work. We wouldn't do it if we didn't think it was going to work. And, and sometimes there's evidence that it is working. You know, and, and we may be able to sustain the things that we've set up and that we've created and we've developed with our families and our work and our houses and our jobs and our communities. And then we can kind of get a little bit complacent. We can kind of forget that this is all temporary. <laughs> that this is all temporary. And sometimes I wonder if it isn't even a little bit better when the universe shakes us up because then we don't go to sleep we don't go to sleep around it it's too easy to go to sleep here in this realm especially in this privileged society in the privileged society that we live in it's easy to go to sleep i've spent a lot of time in india as many of you know and it's can't really go to sleep there <laughs> It's just like the first noble truth is just like in your face there. You know, birth, aging, sickness, and death is everywhere. Nothing's hidden. Everything's out. Carrying the corpses on the street, you know, to the cremation ceremonies, sick and dying people on the streets, animals who are sick and dying, and children who are sick and poverty, and, you know, nothing really works in a very orderly way. <laughs> It's just, it's all, I can't take anything for granted. Have to be wide awake. Never know what's going to happen next. But we, here we can kind of just lull ourselves a little bit. I used to teach in um, Bodh Gaya in the north of India where the Buddha was enlightened for, for many years. And I taught with a man named uh, Fred von Allman, a Swiss man, wonderful, wonderful man who is, who founded the Beatenberg Meditation Center in Switzerland. And he used to say each year he'd come, because he lives in Switzerland. Now talk about 
a controlled, <laughs> efficient, <laughs> you know, you can, you know, any clock is you know going to be set to the to the to the atomic clock, you know. So, so he said he would come to Bodhgaya every year because he needed it. He needed to be shaken up. He needed to be reminded of how the rest of the world lived, so that he wouldn't go to sleep. And so, and so this. Through the practice, through our practice, through the teachings, through the contemplations, through the meditations, we can start to look directly at the way things are. That things are impermanent, and when I hold on, I suffer. I think one person, it may have even been somebody here who said once, yeah, you get rope burn. You know, it's like that Duke is like, you know, you're holding on to the rope really tight, but the rope is going through your fingers, you know. It's rope burn. So we contemplate this, and, and until we actually start to feel that pain of holding on, we may not really know that it's painful. It, we may have to wait until something happens. And we are almost a little bit shocked at the the change or the transition. How could this happen so quickly? You know, the diagnosis that comes just out of the blue. I've been hearing this so much now from people on retreats and friends, you know, just like that. One of my colleague's sister, just 70 years old, was just diagnosed three months ago with pancreatic cancer. She died few weeks ago. Healthy, active, strong woman. Three months from diagnosis. You know? So we don't know. We don't know. So so this is uh, for the the Buddha talks about this sense of urgency, you know, this that the practice, the the teachings can you know when we hear this and, and 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 if we get inspired or there's something that wakes up in us, it can give us a, a sense of urgency to practice to 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 not get, get complacent, to not go to sleep, so that we are ready as the change happens and the change that affect us in a very deep way as a human when we are separated from what we love and the people that we love. When, when we start, when our body starts to fall apart, when, when we find out that we're, we don't have much longer to live, if we're lucky, you know, maybe we just, you know, we're here one minute and not the next minute. We don't know. But yet we're prepared. We start to prepare ourselves. We start to see what's called the emptiness. The emptiness in things. Emptiness means that things are not solid. They're, they're empty of self-existence. We call it empty of self. It's, a, it's the other characteristic of existence, that innate, exi- innate characteristic. It's called selflessness or emptiness, the empty nature of self. All that means is that that which, we, that which, which appears as a self or as solid is not. It's changing. It's impermanent. It's dynamic. It's, we say it's selfless. 
doesn't have its own entity. It doesn't have its own independent existence. The three characteristics of existence, anicca, anatta, dukkha. Anicca, impermanent, anatta, selfless or empty of self. Dukkha, unsatisfactory. <laughs> we can't hold on. Dukkha. These are very, very deep and profound contemplations which we can see directly. It's not something that we take on as, oh, well, that's a, the Buddha says that, so it must be true. The Buddha always says, and that's the power of mind, this mindfulness and concentration that we involve ourselves in, he always says, come and see for yourself. Ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. Don't believe anything that I say. Turn the lamp of awareness on your own mind and see if it's true. And again, he said, if I did not think you could do it, I wouldn't ask you to, you know, because it is the human condition. It is the condition of this, of the nature of Dharma, Dharma, the nature, the law, the order of things. And so as we practice we begin to open to the truth, the truth of existence, or the Dharma. Another translation of Dharma is truth. The way things are. The truth in the way things are. And it's not just some philosophical fancy, you know, that we can entertain ourselves and say, yeah, it's really exciting, you know, to know these great philosophical truths. This impacts us directly. <laughs> it impacts the way we live our life. It impacts the quality of our life. It impacts whether we are going to live with ease, live with contentment and happiness, whether we're going to live with safety because the Dharma is our true protection. The Dharma is our true protection, our true security, our true refuge. When we take refuge in the truth, in the way things are, this is this is the true protection. So it makes a difference whether we live with that ease and contentment or whether we live with suffering and pain, and pain, in this case, psychological pain, not physical pain, but psychological pain. Sometimes even hell hell on earth. We, when we speak about heaven and hell, we're talking about our human condition. That when we are locked in to our own confusion and delusion and distortion of the way we think things are, can be hellish. We know that. I've been there. 
I know probably you know that condition as well. But there is also the possibility of heaven. Heaven on earth, heaven in the human condition. We talk about the realms, the realms of existence, the heaven realms and the hell realms. Buddhism loves to talk about all the different realms of existence, whether they're, you know, of this world or out of this world. You know, there's a whole cosmology of all the different realms that, you know, we can travel to. But I like to understand that they're all right here. (laughs) They're all right here in this worldly condition, depending on the quality of my mind depending on my own mind because in some way that's what's creating the heaven or the hell right here and now so as things change they're not just changing and then ending but they're actually changing and becoming something else. Everything is in a constant state of change and becoming. This is the creative force or the creative dynamism, that everything is turning into something different or something new, just like a mind state or a mood or a, or our body or the food or, you know, it's on the plate and then it's in our stomachs digesting. You know, it's always changing into different forms and then it changes into another form which winds up in the toilet, you know. (laughs) And then it becomes compost, you know, for the soil. It's just like things are just constantly changing and altering. There's this lovely poem I like where it says, The moon waxes merely to wane. An overripe peach begins to rot. A wave crests, then ebbs. In all things, when there is no longer room for advance, decay sets in. And as decay sets in, then that becomes the fertilizer or the soil or the nutriment for the next formation, for the next thing to be born. And then the next thing comes into birth. Bhante Gunaratana, one of the elders in our tradition, talks about this. He says that everything is in the process of changing into something else, not only changing. This is the nature of change itself. This is the nature of change, this law of change and the law of becoming. He says that nothing is but becoming. Nothing is but becoming. Everything's becoming something. Which now we call morphing. You know, this (laughs) this word that's come into our language now, morphing, which came from metamorphosis. You know, that this, uh, this, this way, this special effects that can very smoothly transition one image into another image, you know, in the, in the digital screen. You know, and it's just this wonderful, everything can just morph in front of our eyes now. You know, but it's happening all the time. They just were able to produce it in digital media. 
So, so we can see this. We start to see this. We can see it in our breathing. We breathe out. As we breathe out, there's actually a bit of a gap. If you really pay attention, you breathe out, and there's just a stop. It is like it comes to a dead end, <laughs> and then the next breath comes in. A different form, a different sensations, and then that breath flows to the out breath, and then it stops. And then the next breath comes in. So the whole of life, the whole of life's expression is happening right in our breath. That change, that metamorphosis, right here and now. And then the ending, we call the cessation. The ending. And when the Buddha teaches the Four Noble Truths, he says the cause of this suffering for us is this grasping, is the way that we hold on. But the third Noble Truth is that there is an end to this grasping. There is a cessation to this grasping. That, too, can come to an end. And in the Buddha's teachings, then, when we are really free, when we become a Buddha, there is no longer any more nourishment for that grasping to be born again. That is the mind of a Buddha. It's the end of the causes and conditions that give rise to that grasping the cessation once and for all. No more nutriment. There's no, nothing feeding that anymore. That's the mind of a Buddha. That's a ways off. <laughs> but we now, in our practice, can pay attention to the way that we keep feeding that grasping. The way we keep giving food, <laughs> nutriment to that grasping. And as we start pulling away that nutriment, we stop engaging in the same patterns, the same habits, that pattern, that, that tendency of mind starts to weaken, starts to weaken. It loses its power. It loses its force. And at some point, and this is the awakening process, at some point it weakens to such an extent that is no longer impacting the quality of our life, the quality of our being. So, I think I'll end with... Um, This song, in a way, it's a song, you know, it's a poem, but in the, in the ancient times they called these songs freedom songs. And this is a woman who became free. This is written in a book called The Women of the Way. And this, these were her words that described what happened. She saw that arising arose abided and fell away. 
She saw that knowing this arose, abided and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the mist of everything. She fell into the <laughs> So beautiful. <laughs> she let go and fell into the mist of everything. And so, really, there's nothing to lose because we get it all back. <laughs> Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.